Good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us in worship. I'm back this up. All right, so I don't trip, fall, nightmare for pastors. Okay, so just trying to avoid that living reality. Okay, so where was I? Thanks for, hap- thanks for being here, whether you're virtual, whether you're in person, we're glad to have you. If you are on YouTube, we hope you can join us soon in person. In the meantime, uh, you can email me at sit at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com. We'd love to hear from you, know that you're there with us and a part of our community. If you are new in person, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you feel really welcome. And there's actually a table out there that you can grab a mug and you can sign up for um, a a newsletter that we send out or getting information. Uh, We'd love that. And even if you're just sort of new and you want a coffee mug, as I say every week, just grab one. It's okay. (laughs) There are plenty. Um, Also, if you're looking to get more plugged into the community, um, you can just look at the announcements that we talked about, uh, different events going on the week, and you can also just look at a life group. Feel free to look at more than one life group um, and see where you can fit in and and get involved. Well, as we sort of transition to this sermon, um, I did just want to say another quick word about Lent, because historically and globally, the Christian church Uh, has celebrated the roughly 40-day time period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday in a season called Lent. Lent is a time of self-examination and preparation. Lent uh, is this time of self-examination where we look at our hearts and we look at what's inside of our hearts for the impulses and behaviors, the sins that have nailed Jesus to the cross, and a time of preparation, preparation for what Jesus' resurrection victory means for our sins and for death itself and all the beauty and glory that that holds for us. And so for the next several Sundays, we're gonna, as a church, go through this. We're gonna lean into the radical honesty of Lent about our world and about ourselves and about Jesus um, because we can enter a season like this and there's kind of two schools of thought. You can think, here's my chance for a mulligan, a spiritual do-over for the New Year's resolutions I didn't get to or didn't actually make. And then some of you are like, great, another holiday where I have to practice self-denial. I'm out. No, thank you (laughs) very much. (laughs) And so, but Lent is actually not those things. Lent is a journey that does not start with you and I getting better. 40 days to a a new you or self-improvement. It also doesn't look like 40 days of spiritual pouting, right? No, Lent is actually starts by bringing us to a place where in our weakness, we are open to what God is up to in this world and in our lives. And where we need him to come and to save us from our sins and from ourselves for the first time or the 10,000th time. And the book of Ruth really just is an invitation to this space of Lent, right? It offers us this, it offers us a look, a window into our need by looking at the needs of others, into this kind of radical honesty about our real selves and our real world Uh, but without losing the very real promise and presence of the Lord Jesus and his love. And really the book of Ruth does this by telling a really intimate story of two widowed women and a nearly forgotten farmer. They're acting out these intricacies of love in the days when the judges ruled. But at the center of these personal histories of people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, uh, there's often humming along Behind these very human scenes, there's often humming along up close and personal flashing forth in these scenes, 
the love of God, the Lord willing and working for his good pleasure in our lives. And that's all a way of saying we're looking at Ruth, we're looking at Lent, but before we kind of start to talk about what love and God's love looks like in our passage and in our lives, let's pray together. So would you join me in praying uh, with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, uh, we all carried uh, a lot into this room, and, and some of us still have it on our backs. Um, some of us are struggling to let it go. Um, some of us feel suffocated by it. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with, with those of us who feel that way. Would you help our hands to unclench? Would you help our jaws to, to loosen? Would you ease the burden? And Lord, some of us are restless. I pray that you'd be with us in our restlessness, that we'd find rest in you. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us by your word wherever we are this morning. And would you change us by it? Um, we humbly ask to sit underneath it and not stand over it. We humbly ask to see you, Jesus, that you, you'd speak through your word to us yet again this morning. Speak to our individual situations that only you know. And would you change us? Would you change us by your love? Show us your love. Open our eyes of our hearts to see it fully. Would you be high and lifted up, Jesus? We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, here's a question that bothers me. I'll be driving on 115 to work from Davidson, and I'll look around, and I'll sometimes ask myself, Sid, if you had been alive during the time of Jesus, and you had heard him teaching, would you have actually followed him? Like, if you'd been there, seen Jesus, heard him say what he said, would you drop everything and follow him? Well, would you? How about you guys? Would you do that? Would you have done that? I think of the question, especially when I drive by the Cornelius Town Hall for some reason, um, there on the food line shopping side of the Cornelius Town Hall, I imagine a crowd gathering around a man dressed in flip-flops and a black t-shirt and a well-worn pair of gray pants. And he's saying these things, things like, don't resist evil. And when people cuss you out, give them a hug. And love your enemies. And when people let you won't let you borrow a dollar, you give them a week's worth of your dollars. What would I do with that? Imagine this a man, let's call him Joe Green. Joe Green looks at you, that man preaching those sermons, those, those talks, looks over the heads of the crowd, and he calls you by name, and he says, hey, Sid, I want to come over to dinner at your home tonight. Would I and would you really say, sure, come on. <laughs> come on, happy, happy to have you, let's go. The same person that planted that really difficult uh, to shake question about Jesus in my head is a guy named Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry asks a second embarrassing question that's very related to the first, and it's this. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can you be sure you would keep Jesus's commandments if it became excruciatingly painful to do so? To help us answer that question more honestly, uh, Wendell Berry gives us a, a true historical situation, a story of sorts. It's 1569, Holland, a Mennonite named Dirk Willems is fleeing his death sentence for believing in the wrong kind of Christianity. And the state's thief catcher spots Dirk Willems and Willems runs across a foreign body of frozen body of water 
and this 16th century European marshal runs out across the, the ice to catch Willems. Willems gets safely across the other side, but the marshal does not. He breaks through the ice. He falls into the freezing, swirling water. And it becomes clear, without Willem's help, this marshal is going to drown and die. Wendell Berry puts that real historical problem this way. What did Dirk Willems do then? Was the thief catcher an enemy merely to be hated, or was he a neighbor to be loved as oneself? Was he an enemy whom one must love as a child of God, or was he one of the least of these, my brethren? And so Willems decides to turn back, put his hand out to his pursuer, and to save his life. And then the rescued thief catcher wanted to let Williams go, but he couldn't, and he was forced to arrest him. And Dirk Williams was then tried, sentenced, and died as a martyr by lingering fire. All for his quote-unquote unorthodox Christian belief, which saved another man's life. Well, perhaps if you, some of you now who are doubting or exploring Christianity are fairly sure <laughs> it's European history, at least, might be worse than you thought. <laughs> okay? But you do have to admit this, right? You have to admit it's oddly compelling that Jesus could move someone to such an incredible act of selfless love. Even in the face of incredible injustice, what kind, what, uh, what kind of a relationship can do this in our lives? And really, Wendell Berry's second question and, and really that story about Dirk Willems are meant to help us ask about Jesus and really to see his love and how uneasy it is. How uneasy Jesus' love is. And we see this actually in Ruth's love for Naomi in our passage this morning. You see in Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through chapter 2, verse 3, we're challenged to love uneasily like Ruth. Even as this passage comforts us that Jesus loves us so much more uneasily. So we're going to look at the uneasy challenge to love like Ruth, but then we're also going to rest in the uneasy love of Jesus for us. And that's what we're doing this morning. So let's look at the challenge and comfort of Ruth and Jesus's love by applying Ruth's story to our own faithful love and also at the same time God's gracious love. So first, uh, in the, if you look at the outline, if you could put that up there, Brennan, that'd be great. First, chapter, chapter 1, verses 11 through 22, chapter 2, verse 2. Our faith looks like an uneasy love beyond circumstances. Okay, so an uneasy love beyond circumstances. We're challenged to boldly speak, then humbly act in an uneasy love. Okay, there it is. Cha- second point, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. We're going to look at how God's grace looks like an uneasy love beyond coincidences. So an uneasy love beyond circumstances. Then we're going to look at, and that's faith. We're going to look at grace, an uneasy love beyond coincidences. As usual, you can find that outline projected behind me. For me, it's up there. And then also in your e-bulletin um, on your phone or an email. All right, let's look together at, at the first part, chapter one, and this idea of an uneasy love beyond our circumstances. All right, chapter one, verses one through 19, we watch Ruth's uneasy love unfold through her uncomfortably bold words. Take a look at there with me. If you think about it, we read and discussed the background of Ruth's words last week. Naomi and her family have left, they left their home in Bethlehem on account uh, of a field-withering famine that happened in ancient Israel. 
And they journeyed roughly 70 to 100 miles into Moab, which is kind of modern-day Jordan in the Middle East. And Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and then her sons, Malon and Kilion, all died. And then 10 years into Moab, Naomi hears word that the, God has, that the Lord God has visited his fields, his people's fields, in Bethlehem again with grain. And so she takes her relatively new Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and then she begins to walk the 70 to 100 miles back on foot to her homeland. But in the midst of her profound grief, Naomi realizes what she's asking of her daughters-in-law, to abandon their families and their homelands and their prospects at remarrying and starting again. And so she has second thoughts, and, and she begs Orpah and Ruth to leave her. Leave her without emotional and social and financial support. Somewhere halfway between Moab and Bethlehem. And in verse 11 of our passage this morning, Naomi is redoubling her tightly braided, common sense approved argument for Orpah and Ruth to go back home to Moab. Here's a Sid Druin authorized paraphrase version. Okay, verse 11. I've got nothing. Nothing for you. No sons now, no prospects for sons in the future. And even if I did have twin sons this late in life without a husband, by the time they'd be man enough for you, your mid-20s would be your 40s and you'd have menopause. That's, the, that's what she's basically saying in verse 11. Verse 14 tells us that Orpah gets the hint. She decides to, to leave the Israelite version of the bachelor, right? And then she decides that she's going to take her chances with the Moab version of the bachelorette next season. And then she goes, she heads to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth clings to Naomi. And so Naomi triples down for the third time, telling Ruth to, to go away for her own good. See, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her own people and her, good, her gods return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi tries her hand at peer pressure and the Israelites as stranger danger to no avail. Because what Naomi's well-meaning attempt reveals uh, to get rid of Ruth, it's met with what Cynthia Ozick calls an incandescent reply that has set 30 centuries trembling. An incandescent reply that has sent 30 centuries trembling. Verses 16 and 17, this is what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, where you die, I will die, and there I will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Look at what Ruth's doing here. She's making a covenant vow. She's making an unconditional pledge of loyalty on that dusty crossroads. And her word choice, again, makes it obvious, right, that, that Ruth understands her life with Naomi in this life is going to be extremely uncomfortable. The word translated lodge there in the Hebrew implies nights upon nights of wandering. And Ruth further makes this pledge to Naomi even after Naomi's death. And finally, Ruth seals her vow with a sworn oath to Naomi's God, the Lord, whom Ruth then adopts in that moment, somewhere between Bethlehem and Moab, as her God. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
But before we move on to verse 19, I just want to pause and, and, and before we look at Ruth's humble action in verse 19, I do just want to pause and notice what Ruth is willingly signing up for here. And it's, and it's clear, we see it when Ruth's incandescent reply is met in verse 18 with the equivalent of a shrug from Naomi. <laughs> Look at this. Ruth gives away her future for Naomi's. And Naomi doesn't even say thank you. Christian writer Paul Miller highlights this loneliness that's often at the heart of true love. True love as defined by the Bible and by, the, by real life, not Disney, true love is a one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. You bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Love like this is unbalanced. It's uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love. It's a determination to do someone good no matter what. Love always narrows and limits our lives. It boxes us in. Love always involves a voluntary narrowing of the life, a selecting of imperfection. Love is so specific, it boggles the mind. In other words, Ruth shows us how love is uneasy. And really, for the last few years, and from a slightly different perspective, the journalist David Brooks has been writing about a love like this in, in, in very similar ways. You see, David Brooks is convinced that love is that specific, that love's willingness to narrow its sights is actually at the heart of figuring out what to do with our lives, that love's narrowness is a part of our vocational discernment, what to do with our lives. In a few different places, David Brooks has lamented the college graduation speech. By the way, the college graduation speech is like the last public place outside of a church where you can just sermonize, where you can give a sermon and everyone's gonna sit through it um, and it can be bipartisan and it's amazing. And so he's saying, this is what we're preaching to people about what it means to transition to adulthood and to make grown-up decisions. And here's his kind of summary. Follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, Follow your dreams and find yourself. This talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood. Finding serious things to tie yourself down to is what adulthood is about. To make sacred commitments to a spouse, a community, and a calling. And oftentimes these commitments are to a set of problems outside of us, not to in ideals inside of us. That's really counterintuitive. And so if we understand vocation as a commitment to a difficult set of problems, that does two things for us. First, it pushes against the very 21st century American assumption that our lives should just be easy. Have you felt this tension in your life, that life should be easy? Instead, we need to accept that whatever we do, whether it's relationships, a job, or a cause, there's actual problems at the center of it that we have to deal with for a living. And that makes life uneasy. Second, when's the last time you stopped and asked yourself big questions? Like, what does the world need? What, is, what does the world need more of? Or at all? Or maybe you ask yourself slightly smaller questions, like what, do, what tends to make me righteously upset? 
What about life gives me a holy agitation? And while these questions can lead to friendships and they can lead to service opportunities and even communities like the church, I had a friend, Steve, who was also my realtor at one point, who liked to apply these questions wisely to our work, to what we do for a living. Because you see, whatever we do for a living and wherever we do it, whether it's in a corporation or a nonprofit or at home, what we do for a living is actually choosing consciously a set of problems to deal with right? Problems that we get to work at for our lives. We get to feel the heft of. We get to tussle with. And sometimes even, sometimes partially solve or at least make progress on. And this is why I became a pastor, right? (laughs) To tussle with the institutional church. I tussle probably more than most of you do about the institutional church. I see it it every day, all day, (laughs) okay? Or to work at the difficulties of the Bible and soul care. And my question is, how about you? What do you do in your vocation? What do you tussle with? For Ruth, at the crossroads of Moab and and Bethlehem, Ruth sees an elderly woman who's in serious need. And she's called by a set of problems. But Ruth doesn't find herself in Naomi's situation. Ruth actually loses herself and tackling Naomi's problems with her. And thereby she gets purpose. And ultimately she finds salvation. One final thought on faith and uneasy love. From chapter one, verse 19, through chapter two, verse two, Ruth's purpose moves from bold words to humble actions, okay? Verse 20 through 22 tells us that Ruth returns to the homeland of Naomi that is not yet her home, and exactly none of the Bethlehem women acknowledge her existence, including, sadly, her own mother-in-law, Naomi, the fresh recipient of Ruth's unconditional love statement at the crossroads, Naomi. Okay, Naomi responds to the excitement at her return with a declaration, again, my authorized paraphrase. Yes, maybe it's hard to recognize me. I have changed. This is what Naomi's saying. I was pleasant and I was full, but now I am bitter and I am empty. Imagine being Ruth in that situation, hearing that declaration, right? In her speech and her obvious anguish, for good reasons, Naomi is making Ruth seem to be just one more dark nothing in Naomi's emptiness. And Ruth's return to Naomi's homeland, her commitment to Naomi's good, is not only just unthanked, verse 18, or ignored, verses 21 through 22, now it's actually dismissed as empty. But how does Ruth respond to this homecoming, right? How does, and how does Naomi, who's obviously, and again, for many good reasons, in full-on grief mode, how do, they, how do they reply to each other? Look at chapter two, verse two. Ruth turns to a way that God promises to care for people like her, Naomi. She turns to this practice called gleaning, gleaning. You see, Naomi is so depressed, she won't even get out of bed. Therefore, Ruth has to decide that she, Ruth, is going to go to the field to glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. Translation, here's what Ruth promises to do. Ruth and Naomi have no food. They are going hungry. And so Ruth is going to spend this day and many, 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 many days after it 
out in the sun of a stranger's field, mostly in a crouching position, hands raw to the touch from gathering small, mostly picked over stalks of barley that she has to saw down with a sharp stone, risking physical and sexual assault as a foreign woman in a foreign land so that she and Naomi can actually eat and maybe actually live. Ruth's choice is a faithful one because it's also God's prescribed way for the hungry. You see, in the Old Testament, God commands Israel not to harvest the field all the way to the edges so that the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow can gather the remaining grain there. And as she became familiar with Naomi's God, you see, Ruth realized that she fit three out of those four categories. Widow, foreigner, poor. But why does Ruth choose this way, this path of faithfulness? Why does she choose to trust Naomi's God and his promises to provide through something like gleaning? How does she deal with all of the pain and the, and, and, and the denial and the hurt that Naomi's pushing on her? You see, in Naomi's honestly expressed pain about God, Ruth saw a God, the God, who looks at hurt and vulnerable women and sees that they can and receives their crying out. This God does not reject us when pain narrows our vision. Instead, the Lord God quietly makes personal visits. He makes personal visits to us in our grief, to his people to bring us what we need to live. That is, Ruth saw a God who practices an uneasy love, a ferocious, one-way, unevenly true love. And God has vowed to cling to us. Jesus, Ruth's descendant, sees our emptiness, he sees our bitterness, he sees our hurt, he sees our heartache. He sees the thankless shrug, the way that we turn over in the bed with a groan in the morning. And by his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus vows to us. More than Ruth could ever say or do, in Moab or Bethlehem, he says this, wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people, and there I will be your God. That truly uneasy love is what we sometimes call God's grace, which is at the heart of our second and final point this morning. God's grace can look like an uneasy love beyond coincidence. Chapters 2, verses 1 and 3. I'm just going to focus on one phrase of one verse. And because it's going to tell us how any love that we do and we show in this world is not done in a vacuum, even when it's not received well. Any love that we show is not done without God. God is present because God in his love goes beforehand. God in his love comes alongside and God and his love cleans up after. Chapter two, verse three, tells Ruth, tells us that Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Did you hear that? She happened to come. In the Hebrew, the phrase is even more underscored and stressed. 
Here's how the Hebrew literally reads. Her chance chanced upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The narrator is awkwardly phrasing this, the end of verse three like this, to make a solid point. Ruth didn't know of Boaz. Ruth didn't know where he lived. And so this poor foreign widow comes upon the field of Boaz, the second closest relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. Boaz, who will protect and feed Ruth. Boaz, who will eventually marry Ruth. Sorry, spoiler alert for the end of the book. Ruth stumbles upon Boaz's property, and it is much, much more than chance. It is much, much more than a coincidence. It's important to stress what the biblical narrator is stressing in this passage. Like all of our moments, this moment for Ruth was divinely orchestrated. It was a carefully placed note in the symphony of God. God's melody working in and through our human choices to affect outcomes. Outcomes in this very real world. And this is the reason that God has been nowhere mentioned in the story since chapter one, verse six, because it's so obvious from this moment in verse three of chapter two that God is not nowhere. God is everywhere. It's like that joke that David Foster Wallace once told in a graduation speech at Kenyon College. There are two guys sitting together in a bar in the Alaskan wilderness. And one guy is religious and the other guy is a self-proclaimed atheist and they're arguing over the existence of God with the special intensity that comes after a few beers together. And at one point the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have an actual reason for not believing in God. I do have a reason not to believe. I've experimented with the whole prayer and God thing. Just last month, I got caught away from my camp in the Alaska wilderness in a terrible blizzard. I couldn't see a thing. I was totally lost. It was 50 degrees below zero. And, I was, and so I just tried praying. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, God, if there's a God, I'm lost in a blizzard and I'm gonna die if you don't help me. Now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist guy a little bit confused and says, well then, you gotta believe then, right? After all, you're here alive. But the atheist guy just rolls his eyes like this religious guy is some total simpleton. He says, no man, all that happened was a couple of Eskimos just happened to come wandering by. And they showed me the way back to my camp. In case you're wondering, David Foster Wallace would have identified with the atheist in the bar in that joke. And he told this as a confession of his arrogance to an audience full of graduating seniors and their parents. Here's Wallace's point. A huge percentage of the stuff I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. <laughs> A huge percentage of the stuff I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded, including perhaps not believing in the existence of God and further, not believing in a grace beyond coincidences. And so, are you and I willing to question our certainty about chance and coincidences? Can we believe that God would actually show up for a poor, foreign, needy widow at the edges of an ancient Israelite field? 
Last week, I told you that Jesus hangs around pain. This week, I'd like to add, Jesus also hangs around in the fringes of a field with down and out outcasts like Ruth and like you and me. And if Jesus is actually there with the least of these, he's actually right here with us. Because at our desperate worst, right? At our shrugging mediocre. And, if what, and what, is, what if this Jesus has bound himself like Ruth to Naomi? What if he has bound himself to people like you and me? What would that mean? What if God was willing to go ahead of us to what feels like the most unlikely of places? Cornelius Town Hall, Barrel and Fork, Richard Berry Park on a Saturday morning, the Publix, Davidson College's Belt Computer Lab, Microsoft Teams, virtual space. Just look at what we know of Jesus' historical life. He's born years and years after Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem. He clings relentlessly to thankless people, always the last to leave a hugging embrace. He voluntarily narrowed himself, pledged his total love to self-described bitter ones as well as those called sweet, with all the expectations set between. Jesus died an unjust, horrific death for a watching world that mostly didn't even see him as he truly was. God in the flesh, the one who made all of heaven and earth, the God who emptied himself so that we, we the anxious, the depressed, the bored, the mercilessly efficient, we, we might be filled to overflowing with him by his emptiness. What about him, his presence? What about him, his promises? What about him, his present tense, uneasy love for needy people? Needy people like me, needy people like you. What if, what if God was that kind of God? Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for this reminder of the ways that you work. Thank you for this reminder that you are at work. And Lord, this is just a a sermon to doubting hearts, including my own, that I look at reality and somehow I cut you out of the picture. You're cropped. And I pray that you would help uh, us to see you at work in our lives, however they're going. And I pray that you... Um, from the outside in would change us beyond our circumstances, beyond coincidences. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.